Good morning. Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. It's a joy to be with you on this Lord's Day and to worship with you. Uh, wonderful ramp, I think. I'm, who, who, is, who built the ramp? Brother, thank you. Thank you very much. Wonderful, wonderful ramp. I can't tell you how much of a help and blessing that is. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, okay. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. We will begin. Father, we're so grateful for another day that has fallen from your good and sovereign hand towards us. We pray as we go to your word now that your Holy Spirit would do his work, would illumine the meaning of your word to our hearts, to our minds, that it would find good and deep purchase in the soil of our hearts so that it would, be, that it would bear good fruit to the glory of Christ our King. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 11. This is a message that I have entitled, The Good Fruit of Godly Sorrow. The Good Fruit of Godly Sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 5 through 11. We'll read through verse 13, but 5 through 11 will be primary emphasis. So, beginning at verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. For although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. May God bless the reading of his word. To set the scene here, give you a little bit of context as to what is going on, the Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, came to the city of Corinth, a thoroughly pagan city, he preached the gospel, a number of people were converted, and Paul spent a year and a half, 18 months, with these new believers, discipling them, growing them up, uh, and developing that church there. He planted a church, developed a church, and after a year and a half, Paul felt like the um, Corinthians, these young believers, had reached a level of spiritual maturity sufficient enough 
to carry things on in his absence. And so Paul then left Corinth and went to other destinations, but he may have left a little bit too soon because not too long after he left, Paul got word through a lady named Chloe back in Corinth that uh, immorality had crept into the church. All kinds of sin, immorality, uh, gross sin, factions, divisions amongst the church crept in and was really uh, just about to destroy the church from the inside out. And so Paul wrote a letter to this Corinthian church to address some of those issues. And that, that letter has been lost to us. We don't have a copy of it. So that was actually the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. But while Paul was in Ephesus, he received more reports of trouble this time um, in the forms of further divisions among the brethren. And the Corinthians actually wrote Paul a letter asking him for clarification on various issues like marriage, divorce, spiritual gifts, meat sacrifice to idols, and these kind of things. And so when he received their letter, Paul wrote them another letter. And that letter is what we call today 1 Corinthians. It was actually the second letter that Paul wrote to them, but the first one was lost. So uh, he wrote the second letter, first what we have as 1 Corinthians. And in the midst of all of this, self-appointed false apostles crept into the church. Men who began to call themselves apostles but were not truly apostles. Aren't you glad that that's a thing of the past now that we, you know... We don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, that's, that's not going on, thank goodness. You know, wink, wink. So what these false apostles were doing, though, is they began to attack Paul. They began to attack his character, and they were trying to turn the church of Corinth against the apostle Paul, telling them lies about him. Oh, Paul doesn't care about you. Paul's not a true apostle. We are, though. You you can't trust Paul, but boy, you, you can trust us. And a lot of the church followed their lives. They began to believe the lives of these false, false apostles. So when, when Paul heard about this, he left Ephesus and made a journey to Corinth. Now, I wish I could show this to you up on a map. Uh, going from Ephesus to Corinth is no small endeavor. This was an 800-mile trip around the Aegean Sea, or an eight-day boat trip if you go directly across the Aegean Sea. Um, 800 miles is a long way today, but imagine doing it basically on foot. But that gives you an idea of how deeply concerned Paul was for the Corinthians and how much he loved them. But he made this long journey, and when he finally got to Corinth, he got there with the purpose of addressing their sin issues and trying to help them. But when he got there, he was opposed to his face. The Corinthians completely rejected him. They had believed the lies of the false apostles, and they rejected him, and Paul had to leave. He, they basically ran him out. And by going along with the lies of the apostles, these false apostles, the Corinthians were complicit in their sin. Romans 14, 22, blessed is a man who is not condemned by what he approves. These Corinthians went along with the lies of these false apostles 
and therefore were complicit in their sin. And so Paul made his way back to Ephesus, hoping and praying that the passage of time and the mercy of God would bring the Corinthians to their senses. But when he left, he was absolutely shattered. He was broken hearted. He loved these people. He loved them dearly. I mean, he just made an 800-mile journey to go see them to try to help them, only to be completely rejected. And it shattered him. These were people who had been converted under his own preaching. He poured his life into them for a year and a half, only to be rejected. And it absolutely shattered the Apostle Paul. When he got back to Ephesus, Paul wrote them another letter. This is the severe letter that he references in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. So this, this letter has also been lost to us. We don't have a copy of it. So the severe letter, the painful letter, letter that he references in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, this would have been the third letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And we don't have a copy of it, as I said, but we can tell from what he writes in what we call 2 Corinthians, which was technically the fourth letter. But we can tell from what he writes in 2 Corinthians that it was a severe, stinging letter of rebuke. He wrote a letter of rebuke to confront the Corinthians in their sin. He did not hand deliver it himself. He wrote this letter, rolled it up, and he gave it to Titus. And he said, Titus, I want you to take this back to Corinth. Read it to the church. And so Titus took it, and he did. He made that long journey himself to Corinth, and he led this, read this letter of rebuke, a stinging, painful letter. And when Titus left, Paul had no idea how the letter would be received. He had no idea how Titus would be received. Is this going to make things worse? He didn't know. He had no idea. And so that is for context and setting. So let us go back and work our way through this text. In verse 5, Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Conflicts without. What were those? Those were physical hardships, persecution. Flip over with me just a couple of pages probably in your Bible to chapter 11. Paul details some of these hardships. Chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, Paul fleshes these conflicts without more fully. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more so in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Do the math on that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen. Dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. 
other than that, everything was going great. Incredible hardships, conflicts without, and Paul says, fears within. What are these fears? The fears within is what he said there in that last verse, daily concern on me for all of the churches. As almost incomprehensible as all the physical suffering was, that long list, what concerned him more than anything else was his concern for the churches. That's what concerned him more than anything else. Paul worried that his work in the churches may have been in vain. May have been in vain. We see this in other places as well. Paul told the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4 verse 11. He says, I am afraid I have may, may have labored over you in vain. He wrote to the Thessalonians... He said, quote, for this reason, when I can endure it no longer, I also sent out to find about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Think about this. Here is the Apostle Paul. This is the man who obviously had a very robust theology of the sovereignty of God. This is the author of Romans, Romans chapter 9, Ephesians chapter 1 two towering testimonies to the sovereignty of God, and yet, Paul said, I worry. I had concern that I may have labored over you in vain. If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, a lot. A lot can be against us. But dear friends, nothing can be against us as Christians in such a way that it gains ultimate victory over us. Nothing can do that. Paul had a healthy, robust theology of the sovereignty of God, and yet the daily concern on him for the churches, that got to him too. And notice that he even refers himself to himself as depressed. Look at verse 6. But God, who comforts the depressed... Paul describes himself as depressed. He had the joy of preaching the gospel in Corinth, seeing people converted, starting a church, pouring his life into them, only to see that work come apart. Gross sin, factions, his own spiritual children turned against him. And it got to him. He calls himself depressed. Dear friends, it is not unusual for us as believers to go through times of mental anguish. Not unusual. Martin Luther went through his valleys. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher and evangelist, went through his valleys. He suffered from depression. Uh, the Apostle Paul himself calls it depression. The question is not whether or not we're going to go through these kinds of times, because we will. We live in a fallen world, and we will go through these times. The question is, where do we go for our comfort? What is the solution? Well, let's go to the text. Where did Paul go? Look with me in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians 10. Chapter 1, in verse 3. Paul said, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a whole lot of comfort going on there. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, refers to God as the God of all comfort. Not some comfort, not most of our comfort, all comfort. So where did Paul go to find a solution? Where did Paul go to allay the mental anguish and even depression that he was going through? Did he go to a bottle? Did he take a pill? He went to God, the God of all comfort. Every single one of us will go through times of mental anguish, maybe even get to the point of depression. But dear friends, I think it can probably safely be said that nothing that you and I will face in this earth approaches what the Apostle Paul went through. And if the Apostle Paul could refer to God as the God of all comfort, if he does this writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, if the God of all comfort was enough for the Apostle Paul, he is enough for you and he is enough for me. As Christians, we shouldn't find relief for our mental anguish or our depression in a bottle or in a pill. We will find it. In God. Do we believe what this word says? Do we believe that this is the inspired, infallible, sufficient record of God in His word? I believe that it is. As Christians, we must believe that. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. He is the one and the only one that can give us relief from our own concerns, our own mental anguish. Look with me in verse 8. Continue there. Continue the sentence. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. What gave Paul this joy? Paul wrote this letter, this severe letter, gave it to Titus. Titus took it, delivered it to Corinth. When he finally got there, he read this letter to the entire church, this letter of rebuke, letter, a stinging letter, confronting them in their sin. And then Titus came back. And somehow in God's providence, Titus and Paul met up with one another and Titus brought with him good news for the Apostle Paul. Paul, I read your letter, Paul. And Paul, they repented. They repented, Paul. And Paul was filled with joy. These people for whom 
he cared so much. These people that he loved so deeply had been brought to a place of genuine repentance by this painful letter of rebuke that he sent with Titus. And this brought Paul joy. This brought Paul joy. Look at what Paul says in the next verse. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but only for a little while. Almost sounds schizophrenic, doesn't it? I mean, Paul says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, and for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but only for a little while. So what's going on here? When the Apostle Paul wrote this letter of rebuke, gave it to Titus, and then Titus was gone, Titus was over the horizon, if you will, once Titus left with that stinging letter, then Paul was left to himself and left to his own thoughts, and he wondered, what have I just done? What did I do? Was that too strong? Is that too harsh? How are, you, how are they going to receive not only the letter, but how are they going to receive Titus? What have I done? Have you ever had to write a letter or an email, as is the case, uh, to a friend or a family member that you know is in some egregious, habitual sin? You see that they're in a dangerous place spiritually. You see they're going the wrong way. Have you ever had to write a letter or an email confronting that person, a friend, a family member, confronting that person in his or her sin? And you write this email, and then what do you do? You hit send, right? And then it's gone. No bringing it back. It's gone. And then you wonder, what did I just do? You ever been there? This is what the Apostle Paul was going through. Now, I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but only for a little while. He regretted it only for a little while, because after a while, what happened? His theology kicked in. His theology kicked in. Dear friends, we never have to wonder if doing the right thing is the right thing to do. It always is. The right thing for the Apostle Paul to do was to confront the Corinthians in their sin. That was the most loving thing he could do for them. The most hateful thing we could do for someone when we see that they are in sin, some egregious, habitual sin, when we see that they're going the wrong way, when we see that they're in a place of spiritual danger, the most hateful thing we could do is to see that and not confront them. And not confront them. That's the most hateful thing we can do. But if we truly love someone, we should love them enough to tell them the truth. We should love them enough to confront them in their sin. That is the most loving thing we can do. It is not up to us up to us how that truth is received. But it is up to us to communicate it. Might it result in an alienation of that relationship? Yeah, it sure might. It sure might. 
Might it cost us? Oh yeah. It might cost us and it might cost us dearly. But at least we will have the blessing of having a clear conscience before God. At least we will have the blessing of knowing that we have done the right thing. We do the right thing and then we trust God for the results. Whatever those results are, we trust God for the results. Paul regretted writing that letter, but only for a little while, because his theology kicked in. Let your theology kick in and do the right thing and trust God for the results. Paul continues, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Right here in these two verses, the Apostle Paul describes the difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow over sin. And dear friends, the difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow over sin is quite literally the difference between hell and heaven. It is the difference between a false professor of Christ and a true child of God. These two different kinds of sorrow over sin, a worldly sorrow that a false professor of Christ has and a true godly sorrow that a genuine child of God, a genuine believer has. What is a worldly sorrow? A worldly sorrow is nothing more than a guilty conscience. Paul says that this worldly sorrow leads to death, eternal death. A worldly sorrow over sin is the kind of sorrow that says this, what would happen to me if my sin were exposed? What would be the consequences to me? And we try to cover up our sin, not because we grieve over it, but because we don't want the consequences of it. What would happen to me if my employer knew how I was skimping on the side, being dishonest? What would happen to me if my spouse knew who I was talking to on text message or whatever? What would happen to me if my spouse, if my family knew what I was looking at on the computer. Is that hitting a little close to home? What would happen to me? And so we try to cover up our sin. Not because we grieve over it, but because we don't want the consequences of it. But if we could get away with it, you see, if nobody would know about it, if we had a guarantee that nobody would know about it, we'd go right back to it because that's what we really want. If we could get away with it, we would indulge in it. That is a worldly sorrow, and Paul says that a worldly sorrow leads to death, eternal death. But then there's this other kind of sorrow. Paul describes it as a godly sorrow. And Paul says that a godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. What is a godly sorrow? A godly sorrow over sin is that sorrow that is vertically oriented. A godly sorrow over sin 
comes when we grieve over our sin. And we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. God has been so good, so kind, so patient, so merciful, so faithful to us. And when we sin against Him, we know that our sin grieves Him and it grieves us because we do not want to grieve Him. How can we sin against the one who has been so good and so kind and so merciful to us and when we do, it grieves us. A godly sorrow over sin is the kind of sorrow that David had in Psalm chapter 51. You might remember that David committed egregious, horrific sin, right? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he committed murder to cover up the adultery. And then God sent Nathan to him. And Nathan did what a true friend should do. Nathan did what... For King David, what the Apostle Paul did for the Corinthians, Nathan came to David and confronted him, pointing his finger at him. You are the man. You are the man. And God used that to break David and shatter him. And David cried out in Psalm chapter 51. He said, against you and you alone, O Lord, O Yahweh, have, have I sinned. My sin is ever before me. You are righteous when you speak. You are blameless when you judge. In other words, I am undone. I have no excuse. I'm a sinner. And you are righteous when you speak. You're blameless when you judge. I'm undone. That is a godly sorrow over sin. A godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. It is not that as Christians, you and I cannot sin. And I'm not, please don't under, misunderstand me, I'm not here talking about sinless perfection. As Christians, you and I not only can, but we do sin. But here's the difference between a true Christian and a false professor of Christ. As Christians, you and I stumble into sin, but we don't swim in it. We don't relish sin. We don't look for opportunities to sin. We don't plan out our sin. We don't enjoy our sin. When we do sin as Christians, it grieves us. Does your sin grieve you? When you sin, do you grieve over it because you understand that your sin grieves God? Or, if you could get away with it and nobody would know about it, would you indulge in it? It is quite literally the difference between heaven and hell. A true professor of Christ, a true believer, and a false convert. Verse 11, Paul says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11 is the most detailed account in all of Scripture of what true repentance looks like. If you want to know what true repentance looks like, study 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. Paul says, for behold, 
what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Here are seven characteristics of true repentance listed in this verse. It is the single clearest verse on repentance in all of the Bible. When Titus came back and met Paul somehow in God's providence before, you know, share my location and all that, but when Titus came back and met up with the Apostle Paul and Titus brought this good news, Paul, Paul, I read your letter to them, Paul. And the text doesn't say this, but if you'll permit me just a little bit of sanctified speculation, in my mind's eye, when you think about all of the anguish that Paul went through, when you think about how much he loved these Corinthians, how much he had poured his life into them, how much he earnestly desired for them to come to repentance, my sanctified speculation sees the Apostle Paul hearing this news from Titus. Titus, or Paul, Paul, they repented, Paul. And in my mind's eye, I see the Apostle Paul dropping to his knees and weeping tears of joy weeping tears of joy. And then he burst forth here in verse 11 in this series of superlatives, for behold, you can just sense it, for for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Weeping tears of joy. So let's look at this verse, each element. Paul says, what vindication of yourselves. Vindication. The word here for vindication is the word apologian, and it literally means a speech in defense. The same word that we get our word for apologetics, speech in defense. The Corinthians were not interested in defending themselves, no, but what they were wanting to do, they had no desire to defend themselves but they had a very strong desire to clear their name. They had a very strong desire to distance themselves from their sin. They wanted to vindicate themselves, not defend themselves, vindicate themselves. Whereas before, they were known for their sin, now they wanted to be known for their repentance. They wanted to be known for their true repentance. And then Paul says, what indignation, what indignation, opposition, displeasure, anger. The Corinthians were angry at something. What were they angry at? What were they indignant at? They were angry at their sin. They were angry at their sin. They hated their sin, they hated the consequences of their sin because they understood now as a result of this letter being read to them, they understood that their sin had caused a, a rift between them and the Apostle Paul. It had broken that relationship, which is why Paul started verse 11. He says, Behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. The Corinthians were earnest to have this relationship with the Apostle Paul and God restored. They realized their sin had consequences. It had broken their relationship with the Apostle Paul. 
It had strained their relationship with God, and they wanted to go to war with their sin. They were earnest about having this relationship restored. Please understand here that when Paul wrote this letter of rebuke, this was not a lack of forgiveness on the part of the Apostle Paul towards the Corinthians. It wasn't that Paul had not forgiven them. He had. What was at stake here was reconciliation. Does that make sense? Reconciliation. You can have forgiveness without reconciliation, but you cannot have reconciliation without forgiveness. When someone sins against us, Dear ones, we are obligated from Scripture to forgive that person. We must forgive that person. I don't care what that person has done to us. We must forgive that person. We're obligated to do that. But reconciliation of the relationship cannot occur until the sinning party has truly repented on their sin and repented of it. So what was at stake here was not forgiveness. It was reconciliation of the relationship. This is why Paul said he didn't want them to suffer loss in anything through us. If they had not repented of their sin, they were risking the loss of that relationship with the Apostle Paul. That's a significant relationship. Can you imagine having the Apostle Paul as your founding pastor? What a resource, right? And because of their sin, they were at risk of losing that. So they were earnest to have this relationship restored, to have this relationship reconciled. And they hated their sin that was the cause of it. They hated their sin. If you will, flip over with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read a verse to you that's a familiar verse. You may not know the address, but Ephesians 4 verse 26, you'll know it when I read it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Paul says, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's a familiar verse, right? The way that we have most often heard that verse taught is something like this. Well, if you have a little tiff with your wife, a little you know, argument with your husband, with your wife. You know, these things happen. Live in a fallen world, put two sinners under the same roof. From time to time, you're going to have a little conflict. So um, these things happen, but just kiss and make up before you go to bed. Right? That's the way we've most often heard it taught. And I won't argue that that's good marital advice. I think that is pretty good marital advice. You know, if you have an argument, try to work it out before you go to bed. That's, that's good marital advice. But I would submit to you that that's not what Ephesians 4 verse 26 is talking about. When you look at this carefully, when Paul says be angry, when you look at that in the Greek, it's actually in the imperative voice. In other words, this is a command. This is not an allowance. It's a command. Paul is actually giving them a command, be angry. Be angry. He's commanding them to be angry. So if this is a command, whatever this sin is, it cannot possibly be an inherently sinful, excuse me, whatever this anger is, it cannot possibly be an inherently sinful anger. Because if it was an inherently sinful anger, then Paul would not 
command them to do it, right? The Bible would never command us to do something that's inherently sinful. So if this is not an inherently sinful anger, why does it matter if the sun goes down on it? If it's not sinful, let the sun go down on it. Let the sun come up the next morning, go down on it again if it's not sinful. And it's a command to do it. So what's going on here? I would submit to you that the object of this anger in Ephesians 4.26 is not your husband, it's not your wife, it's not the kids. The object of this anger is, in and of itself, sin. Be angry at your sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry at your sin. Stay angry at your sin. Don't let the sun go down on that anger. When we hear that phrase, don't let the sun go down, what Old Testament story does that bring up uh, images of Joshua's long day, right? And as long as the sun stood still, then Joshua and the Israelites were victorious against the Amalekites, right? Don't let the sun go down on your anger against sin. The word here in Ephesians 4.26 for anger, there's two different words in the, in the Greek, primary words in Greek for anger. Orge and thumos. Orge and thumos. Orge is this deep, settled disposition of anger that never goes away. It's just always there. That's orge. Thumos is an explosive outburst of anger. Think of Mount St. Helens. Remember Mount St. Helens? Uh, orge, that kind of anger, is the massive reservoir of lava deep beneath the Earth's surface, right under Mount St. Helens. It's just always there. Always there, always roiling. That's Orge. Thumas is what happened on May 27, 1980, when Mount St. Helens blew its top. That's Thumas. So which word do you think Paul used here, Orge or Thumas? Orge. Be angry. Stay angry. Have this settled disposition of anger at your sin. Always be angry at your sin. Always be at war with your sin. Don't let the sun go down on that anger. Be angry. Stay angry. For a little bit of context, look at verse 25, the verse before it. Paul says, Therefore, laying aside what? Falsehood. What is falsehood? Lying. What is lying? Sin. Lay it aside. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, laying aside sin, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. That word yet, you might notice, is italicized. It's italicized because it's not in the original Greek manuscripts. So it, Paul literally says here, be angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And look at the next verse. And do not give the devil an opportunity. When does the devil have an opportunity in our lives? When we're not at war with our sin. When we become complacent with our sin. Comfortable with our sin. That's when the devil has an opportunity. But dear friends, if we are at war with our sin, if we are doing what Paul says to do in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, putting to death the deeds of the body, 
if we're at war with our flesh, war with our sin, the devil will not have an opportunity. It's when we're not at war with our sin, when we become complacent, comfortable with it, that's when the devil has an opportunity. The great Puritan preacher Thomas Watson says this, quote, We should look upon sin with indignation. We should pursue it with a holy malice and shed the blood of those sins which shed Christ's blood. The sight of Christ's bleeding body should incense us against sin. Let us not parley with it. Let not that be our joy which made Christ a man of sorrow. Be at war with your sin. Stay at war with your sin. Paul continues. Then he says, what longing. What longing. The Corinthians long to see their relationship with Paul and with God restored. They wanted that reconciliation. They wanted that relationship restored. Dear friends, conflict between believers happens from time to time. But there should never be a reason in which two true believers, both indwelt by the Holy Spirit, both with the Word of God, there is no reason that true that two true believers should ever not be able to reconcile when one sins against the other. If we're all Christians, we're all indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, we have the same Bible, I don't care how big the rift is, there's no, there's no reason that reconciliation cannot and should not take place. It must take place. And it can take place if we will humble ourselves, submit ourselves to the Word of God. The Corinthians longed to have that relationship restored. Then Paul says, what zeal, what zeal you have. What is zeal? Zeal is the confluence of two extremely strong realities, love and hate. When love and hate come together and merge, you get zeal. That's what zeal is. Psalm 69 verse 9 says this, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is what Jesus quoted when he was cleansing the temple, temple with the whips, driving out the money changers. He quoted Psalm 69 verse 9, Zeal for your house has consumed me. When love and hate come together, you get zeal. As Christians, we should have zeal. We should love what God loves, and we should hate what God hates. We don't often think in terms of us as Christians hating things, but are there things that we should hate? Yes, there are things that we should hate, absolutely. Psalm chapter 119, verse 104, David says this, From your precepts I get perception, I get understanding. In other words, from your word I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. As Christians, we should hate every false way. I hate the prosperity gospel. I don't hate prosperity preachers. I have a love for them, not like a love for the brethren, but I have a love in that I want to see them to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
I, want to, I would love to see Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and all these others come to a place of genuine repentance. I would love to see them saved. So I don't hate them, but I do hate what they're doing. I hate every false way. I hate the prosperity gospel. I hate Buddhism. I hate Islam. I hate Roman Catholicism. Because it is also a false theological system that keeps people in spiritual bondage. I hate Roman Catholicism, but I love Roman Catholics. But we should love them enough to tell them the truth. We should love what God loves, and we should hate what God hates. When love and hate come together, zeal. We must have zeal. And then Paul says, what avenging of wrongs. What avenging of wrongs. The Corinthians wanted to avenge their own sin. They wanted to make right their own sin. They desired to make restitution for their sin. They wanted to avenge their sin. Dear friends, one of the signs that a person is truly repentant is that he confesses his sin, owns it, and desires to make it right without any strings attached. Have you ever heard someone say, or maybe, maybe you've said this yourself, okay, I'm really sorry I did such and such and such, but here's why I did it. If you ever hear someone, did we lose a battery? Check, check. Okay. Check, check. Is that it? Okay. If you've ever heard someone say, I'm sorry I did such and such, but here's why I did it. Whatever follows the but negates the I'm sorry. Whatever follows the but negates the I'm sorry. If we're truly repentant, we will confess our sin, own it, and make no excuses for it. Someone who is making excuses for his or her sin is someone who is not truly repentant. Whatever follows the but negates the I'm sorry. Zacchaeus wanted to make restitution for his sin. Remember in Luke chapter 19, Jesus came to Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus, confronted by Christ, he said, Behold, I will give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, I will give four times back as much. That's what real repentance looked like. He wanted to avenge what he himself had done wrong. He wanted to make it right. Real repentance bears real tangible fruit. Real fruit that is evident to everyone. In the last few years, several of the prosperity preachers have come out and make, made statements that they were wrong. They've repented of various things. Benny Hinn said, I, I was wrong in what I taught people about giving a $1,000 seed and God will heal them or bless them. And Todd White came out. He said, I was, I was wrong that I've been preaching the gospel without any repentance. This was just a couple of years ago, which means you preach the gospel without repentance. You're not preaching the gospel. You've been giving thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people a false gospel. But then literally within a week of his supposed repentance, he went right back to his same old ways. Same with Benny Hinn. Within a week of his supposed repentance, he went back to his same old ways. But 
Benny Hinn did this. Todd White did this. Joyce Meyer did a similar thing. Creflo Dollar did a similar thing. And it made big news. You know, people, oh, people are all excited. Oh, they repented. No, they didn't repent. They did not repent. How do I know they didn't repent? Well, for two, two ways. Number one, each of them went right back to doing what they had always been doing before. And two, the very fact that they're still in ministry shows that they didn't repent. If they were truly repentant, this is what repentance would look like. We'll use Benny Hinn as an example. If Benny Hinn was truly repentant, here's what he would do. He would come out and he would say, I have been lying to you for 40 years plus of ministry. All of the, I have offered hundreds of false prophecies. I've been lying to you. All of the people that I have claimed were healed up on my platform were not healed. I was deceiving you. Uh, I have exploited the poor, the sick, the desperate, and the widows for personal financial gain. Todd White would come out and say the same thing. I've been deceiving you, quite literally pulling people's legs. I've been lying to you. Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, the same way. They would all come out and admit all the times that God, that I've claimed God has spoken to me, God has not spoken to me. I've been deceiving you. And I now realize that I'm not qualified to be in ministry. I don't meet the biblical qualifications. So I'm shutting the ministry down. Every asset that the ministry has, I'm selling. Every studio, every car, every private jet, every light bulb that the ministry has, every chair, every seat cushion, everything that the ministry has, I'm selling it, and I'm giving all of that money to doctrinally sound ministries, doctrinally sound churches, and I'm going to find a good doctrinally sound church led by biblically qualified men. And I'm not going to be behind the pulpit. I'm going to be in front of the pulpit, sitting in the pew, and learning. That would be repentance. And anything less than that makes a mockery out of repentance. Real repentance bears real fruit. The Corinthians were confronted in their sin, and God granted to them true repentance, and it bore real, tangible fruit. Is this what your life looks like? Do you have this godly sorrow over your sin? If you're not certain of where you are in your relationship with the Lord, I would encourage you to get real honest before God. Confess your sins to Him. And if you will come to Christ in a true godly sorrow over your sin, He will save you. If you will come to Christ just as much wanting a Savior from your sin as wanting a Savior from hell, He will save you. You'll pass from death to life. Old things passed away, behold, all things made new. God will take out that heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. And Jesus himself will be your reward. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word. We thank you that you have not left it to our own imaginations as to what repentance looks like. You tell us what real repentance looks like. And Father, if there are any here this morning who have not yet been called to the shepherd, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do that work of conviction, conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment, conviction of the truth of the gospel, that you would call them to Christ. For all of us as believers, Lord,
uh, may we find rest and comfort in your word, knowing that as Christians we are not perfect. We do sin, but when we sin, it grieves us. And may we always be at war with those sins. For the glory of Christ our King. It's in his name we pray.